From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. Primary reason that Roe was overturned on Friday was because in 2016, evangelical Christians joined together with conservative Catholics and they elected a president who kept his promise to appoint three conservative In 2016, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. It was a cornerstone of his presidential win, and although he lost his bid for re-election, white evangelical support was actually up by 1% in 2020. And this block has been incredibly energized by the ongoing culture war wins they're seeing, even as they leverage the grievance mentality perfected in the last couple of decades. With the midterm elections fast approaching and the next presidential campaign due to start any day now, author and editor Brian Kaler has co-written a powerful article headlined The 2024 Evangelical Primary, and we'll get his insights later in the hour. No one should have to flee his home because of race, religion, sexual orientation, or conflict. Yet, every day, people are fleeing persecution from their country. Mistrust, cynicism, and division seem epidemic in our culture right now, so it's refreshing to see America through the hopeful eyes of a refugee who fled persecution and violence to make a new start here. Adafe Oporo is a gay Christian from Nigeria who has built a thriving consulting firm while dedicating much of his time to advocating for other refugees, to creating art, and to writing. In fact, Adafe has just published a book entitled Asylum, a Memoir and Manifesto, and he'll be with us to share part of his story. America was founded based on Christianity. Our DNA is Christian. Our roots are Christian. We aren't Muslim. We we aren't uh, atheist. America is the greatest country that's ever existed. Interfaith Alliance is present in Washington, D.C. as an effective policy, advocacy, and education nonprofit but especially at a time when attacks on true religious freedom are proliferating at the state and even local levels in this country, Interfaith Alliance affiliates are positioned to be the first line of defense. Fortunately, we're seeing new affiliates organizing themselves, and among those is the nascent Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. On this week's show, you'll meet the driving force behind that effort. Ross Keyes. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and things that can backfire. RNS reports that two Catholic nuns in Kansas are challenging their bishop's public support of a drastic anti-abortion proposal. Speaking out against a planned amendment to the state constitution, they have distributed a letter criticizing the amendment as imposing religious beliefs on all Kansans. In their letter opposing the measure, which is up for a vote on Tuesday, Sister Angela Fitzpatrick, a founding member of the Catholic Social Justice Network lobby, and Sister Michelle Morick, liaison to fellow nuns for the Global Sisters report, write that, quote, Jesus trusted women, we do too, end quote. With the slogan, Stand Against the Godless Left, actual member of the actual U.S. Congress from the actual state of Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is now marketing t-shirts emblazoned with a cross and the words, Proud Christian Nationalist. Meanwhile, a judge this week denied a grassroots effort to declare Green ineligible to serve based on a U.S. Constitution provision barring insurrectionists from office. Wonder what the 14th Amendment is for, if not the case of an outspoken promoter and apologist for the January 6th insurrection. And do you remember the Michigan State Senator who was targeted by a colleague in a vicious fundraising email? Well, now the numbers are in on the obscene smear of Mallory McMorrow, calling her a sexual groomer of kindergartners, among other things, And while her fellow state senator, Republican Lana Tice, did receive financial reward for the attack, $235 to be precise, McMorrow's impassioned viral video response drew in excess of $1 million in financial support. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. 
If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. The Word and Way Public Witness article is headlined, The 2024 Evangelical Primary, a headline that only scratches the surface of what's happening right now in places where religion and politics are relentlessly mixing together. The piece is co-authored by Bo Underwood and Word and Way Editor-in-Chief Brian Kaler. With some trepidation, I'm thankful to welcome Dr. Kaler back to State of Belief Radio today. Brian, thanks for being with us. It's great to be back on the program. So, listen, not surprisingly, Mike Pence is giving pre-campaign speeches at houses of worship. What are you hearing him say? Yeah, former Vice President Mike Pence is clearly running for president. That was the unstated message when he preached recently on our Wednesday night service at a church in South Carolina. And when an Indiana resident shows up in one of the early voting states, you know what's really at play. <laughs> and he, he was particularly talking about the Dobbs decision and framing the Trump-Pence administration as a pro-life administration is the way Pence was describing it and, and celebrating this moment and rolling back uh, Roe v. Wade. And so that, I think, gives us a little bit of a signal as to what he thinks is his lane in the presidential primaries, is that he wants to be the, quote, pro-life, anti-abortion candidate and run on the coattails of the Supreme Court decision. So the, this white evangelical voting block is uh, is valuable real estate for anybody considering a run for president. Who else is courting that vote at this stage of the game? Yeah, you know, and I hate talking about the 2024 presidential campaign already, although it is my fault I wrote about it. And that's why you asked to have this conversation, <laughs> because it seems like it should be too early. But if we're paying attention, the candidates are already out there. I mean, obviously, the former president is also courting and toying with the idea of running again. And he was among several candidates that showed up. Uh, recently at the Faith and Freedom Coalition's conference. This is the group run by Ralph Reed. It's been a really important place for candidates in the past who have stopped by. And there were a number of candidates this year besides uh, former President Donald Trump. You had Rick Scott from Florida, former uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, senators who ran in 2016 and are thinking about it again. Mike Pompeo. So these are some of the names that are clearly uh, Tim Scott. These are some of the names that were at that conference. So it was a it was a big gathering of potential Republican candidates. And some of them are also running in other ways as well. Mike Pompeo, I think, is one that seems to stick out really obviously after the Kennedy v. Bremerton Supreme Court decision, the, the really problematic ruling about school prayer. His PAC put out an ad. And it's, it's, it's weird. You know, what's this guy who's not on the ballot anywhere this year? He's not in office and he's running an ad, a, a very you know slick made television ad. It's digital uh, video ad in Iowa and South Carolina. Uh, Mike Pompeo praising the Supreme Court decision about prayer, government prayer in public schools. That's a clear sign that Pompeo is planning uh, to run for president. So these are some of the characters that are already reaching out to white evangelical voters in, in praying for electoral salvation, if you will, in 2024. Yeah, you've you've mentioned two of these uh, court cases that came out recently that have been hot topics. What language is emerging among those wannabes that give us the idea of what to expect in upcoming campaigns? I'll even let you talk about 2022, uh, <laughs> not just 2024. I, I assume we're going to go even beyond that awful Texas GOP platform that caused such concern a couple of months ago. Yeah. So obviously the, one of the key phrases that we're going to hear a lot because of the Supreme court rulings is, you know, religious Liberty. And you and I both know that when they mean religious Liberty, they actually mean Christian nationalism. They're not talking about true religious Liberty for all, but they're talking about their, what they think is their right to establish their religion. Right? They're really turning the two clauses of the First Amendment religion clauses on top of each other. And so that's a that's a phrase that we're already seeing. Uh, Pence was using it in the church in South Carolina. Pompeo's using it in the ad uh, that he was running. 
And then, of course, this this rhetoric about life uh, because of the Dobbs decision on uh, abortion rights, that, that these are key phrases that they're going to be fighting over each other to decide who's the most, quote, pro-religious liberty, who's the, quote, most pro-life candidate. Uh, and unfortunately, in neither case do they actually live up to the rhetoric. But these are the buzzwords that we're already seeing. I want to turn a little bit to January 6th of uh, 2021. Do you think that uh, other potential candidates, other than the the ones we sort of know about that you mentioned already, are waiting to see how the hearings on the January 6th uh, insurrection ultimately impact Donald Trump's viability, or have they sort of used him up and moved on and and they're ready to just pretend he was never there? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think we probably are still a little too early to know. I think if you had asked that question, maybe you know, five months ago, three months ago, I would say that this was still Trump's party to lose. But there's definitely been some knocks in his armor. The January 6th committee hearings have been masterful. They've been well done. They have exceeded my expectations in really helping lay out very powerfully, persuasively, just how involved the former president was in trying to overturn our democracy. And I do think we're seeing some signs that people recognize, even those who have been supportive of him, recognize that maybe the the crack, the door is opening just a little bit, that he's not the that necessarily shoe in for the next nomination. And so I think they're all emboldened. I think they see a chance uh, to get this nomination now. Have you heard evangelical voices overtly dismiss the attack on the Capitol in service of a political religious right agenda going forward? Yeah, unfortunately, this is something that is happening. I mean, you know, probably the best example is the Reawaken America tour, which, you know, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, and then, uh, you know, the Trump sons have been speaking at these. A number of Christian nationalist preachers have been at these events, and they are very much celebrating January 6th, bringing people to speak who have been arrested for their participation in their activities at the Capitol that day, uh, arguing that these are the patriots and that this was, you know, still arguing this was a fraudulent election and so on and so on. So there is very much this rhetoric there that what happened on January 6th was actually a good thing. And the only thing that was a problem was that it didn't succeed, that, you know, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was right. You know? And so there, there is this baptism, the sanctification of January 6th. And, you know, speaking of someone who might run for president, I mean, there's been some that think this is what this Reawaken America tour is pushing. Michael Flynn actually as the candidate if Donald Trump decides not to run. And so I think we will see this rhetoric in the presidential primaries in 2024, this, you know, continuing to spin and just make up what really happened. You know, this was not normal tourist visit. This was not legitimate political discourse. This was not something that was righteous and holy. But we're going to hear that from these candidates. The, the name of this tour, the Reawakening America tour, harkens back to the Great Awakening, which is uh, something that is very important to the evangelical community. And yet we're looking at people like Michael Flynn and Roger Stone, who would not exactly be called faith leaders uh, by any stretch of the imagination. How are they getting away with that? It's amazing. I mean, it really is. And I, I have unfortunately occupational hazard as I'm writing at a public witness is that I have watched some of these events and it is amazing the heresies that have happened that come out of the mouths of the speakers. Um, both of those men, particularly Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, uh, just say remarkably crazy things, both about politics and about faith. And it is in many ways, it, it feels like we are seeing the birth of a new religious movement that's happening. Uh, the, you know, this QAnon and the conspiracy theories and January 6th all wrapped in together, messianic tones engaged in all of this. It, it's definitely, uh, I think it's, a, it's still very much a scary time. It's a scary time for our democracy as we have candidates that are courting and, and playing with these conspiracy theories about January 6th and so much more. You know, I, I've been associated with Interfaith Alliance for more than 25 years, and I don't think there's been a year that's gone by that some pundit on the left hasn't proclaimed the death of the Christian coalition <laughs> or Christian nationalism. And you make reference to this in, in the most recent edition of Warden Way also. 
what's going on here? And is there any chance that people are right this time, that there's been a decline in the influence and effectiveness of the Christian coalition in specific and the religious right in general? Yeah, it is amazing this how often the religious right has died over the last 40 years, and yet it is still mm-hmm. with us because it hasn't actually died. And I get it. Like we talk about the fact that there are demographic changes. There is a maybe somewhere down the horizon we can see the decline of its influence and power. But one of the things we wanted to kind of lay down the marker in this piece is that for 2024, that time has not come yet, that the white evangelical base is still a key part of the Republican Party. And the fact that all of these candidates that we've just talked about are already going to churches and conferences and meetings to reach these voters proves that they know that white evangelicals still are critical for who becomes the next Republican nominee. And so, yeah, I do think we are heading to a point, but it's far down the line. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, though, is that in some aspects of our society, it's way far away. The Supreme Court is the best example. So even if as the demographics shift and maybe white evangelical voters don't have the raw numbers they need for elections, they've already embedded themselves in some anti-democratic, small d, anti-democratic ways that they can continue to push their agenda uh, through Supreme Court rulings and other aspects of our government. And it's also important to remember that white evangelicals vote in much larger percentages than many other populations. So even if if their numbers are declining, uh, their voting patterns are not shifting. Exactly. They, they vote in high numbers and they're highly organized in the primaries. So what causes you the most concern in political terms right now? And how does that overlap or underscore the concerns you have about religious freedom in this country? Yeah, I, I am probably most concerned as we are heading into the 2022 midterm elections and the 2024 presidential elections with this It's not even a fringe or a small sliver, but this dominant perspective in one political party that no longer seems to believe in democracy. That is the mantra. It is the creed that you have to follow or else you will be primaried out of office. I mean, when we're seeing figures like uh, U.S. Representative Cheney, who is as conservative historically as it comes, and she's likely to about lose her primary race merely because she thought January 6th was wrong. Like, that's a danger to our democracy. And we have seen the efforts to roll back voting rights. We're going to see that impact already in 2022. We're seeing uh, elections across the state where people who who believe lies about the 2020 presidential election will win significant offices across the country that will put them in place to impact how the 2024 election is carried out, counted, and uh, dealt with. And so that is a concern. We are in a really dangerous space. January 6th was not the end of the problem. It was really just the beginning. And so I'm really concerned about that. And Christian nationalism is fueling that. It is providing justification. It is providing energy. It is getting people mobilized behind the big lie that is continuing to threat our very existence as a democracy. Brian, uh, thank you for all of that. And though we're going to post some of this uh, information on our website, I want uh, our listeners to hear from you directly on how they can find out more about Word and Way and the work that you're doing. Yeah, our main website is wordandway.org, but where we particularly write at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics is with our email newsletter, A Public Witness. People can read the pieces we've been talking about and sign up so they get them right in their email box at publicwitness.wordandway.org. And word and way, is that with an ampersand or with the word and? Well, w- it ampersand when we put it on the magazine. But if you're if you're typing it into your URL, please spell out A-N-D. Yes. There you go. Important information. Dr. Brian Kaler is the longtime editor-in-chief at Word and Way, a Christian media company based in Missouri, and is associate director of ChurchNet. His important books include Vote Your Principles, Party Must Not Trump Principles, and For God's Sake, Shut up. 
His recent analysis, co-authored with Bo Underwood, is headlined the 2024 Evangelical Primary, and we'll link to it from stateofbelief.com. Brian, thank you for being back with us on State of Belief Radio. Well, thanks, Jack, so much for having me. It was great to talk. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, author, artist, and activist Adafe Oporo, and later, Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. The book title is Direct, Asylum, a Memoir and Manifesto. Both parts are compelling, the dangerous and soul-crushing journey through homophobic circles in Nigeria, as well as the clear-eyed but ultimately hope-filled appreciation for America and its continued promise that the author, Adafi Oporo, brings to his story. Ordained in Africa, Adafi Oporo brings a rare personal familiarity with the ways religion is being misused to advance Western interests there, while marginalizing LGBT persons and their very lives. Adafi, congratulations on this powerful book, and thank you for making time to be with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. I look forward to this conversation. Let me start with the impossible question, because you wrote a whole book. Briefly, and that's what makes it impossible— could you say where you started and where you've ended up as described in the memoir part of this new book? Yeah, I grew up in Wari, Nigeria, which is the south of Nigeria. I grew up in the Delta by the Atlantic Ocean. I was the last in a family of four. I was the first in my family to have a college education. While I was in college, I used to be a pastor of a church. I left the church because of homophobia and I became an activist, providing access to treatment for LGBTQ-identified people in Nigeria, which put my life in danger, and I had to flee. I came to the U.S. seeking asylum at JFK, and I was incarcerated as an asylum seeker. I stayed in a detention center for six months. I was granted asylum, and I was allowed to stay in America as a refugee, and now I work with refugees across the country, providing um, access to technology that will help them rebuild their lives in a new country. As a brief short stop. That's pretty brief, but that's sort of like saying the story of America is we fought a war and now we have a country. So let's fill in one spot in the middle. Would you talk about the life-changing night when you were 26? I think it's impossible for most of us to imagine what happened, yet it wasn't even unusual in that time and place. Yeah, so in Nigeria, there are seven states that practice Sharia law. And in Sharia law, you could be stoned to death for being a gay-identified person. In my community, where I live in Abuja, I was working with gay men who were HIV positive and were not having access to uh, quote-unquote treatment. Mm -hmm. Which was increasing the death mortality rates of gay identified men. And while I was doing this work, I won an award for my work as a public health activist. The night of my birthday, I was woken up with banging on my door. Um, people were screaming, that he's gay. We have found out and we're going to kill him. You know, I ran to the back of my apartment, which is like a one bedroom. I wanted to jump out from the window. The other side, there were a lot of people there too. And they broke my door. I was just having my pants on. They dragged me onto the streets. And they were like beating me up with sticks and woods and children were singing behind me. He's gay. I found out and we're going to kill him. It was just like celebrating my 26th birthday of mine to be killed and waking up in the morning to this mob attack. And I blacked out during that attack. And when I woke up, I found myself in a clinic and I had to flee. This is like a brief explanation because if I go deep in, it kind of affects me later. So I try to like make it as brief as possible. 
sure. Wow, that's that's quite a story. Uh, Adafi, you were ordained in Africa and were able to see up close some of the connections between religion and there in particular homophobic religion and foreign interests. What do we need to know about these connections between domestic religious practice in Nigeria and the influence of foreign groups that have come into the country? So just to set the situation, I joined the church when I, when I was younger because my grandmother, she attended Pentecostal church. And she used to say all the time that she would tell her parents that Edith is going to become a pastor. I wanted to become a pastor because I felt like it's the most noble thing to do in my community. But when I was a teenager, I started having feelings for other men and it was difficult for me to be openly gay and be a pastor. And I decided to join the church then with the intention of like hiding my sexual orientation. Because if I was a pastor, people wouldn't ask me, where's your girlfriend? When are you getting married? Or such kind of questions. But while I was a pastor, I met another person that was a priest of a Catholic church. And he was hiding his sexuality. He was a little bit older than me. Then I saw what my future would be if I continue hiding my sexual orientation. So that was why I came out as gay. But after coming out, I was excommunicated from the church because the, the, the church in Nigeria do not want anything to do with gay identified persons. And these are the deep roots to Nigerians trying to distinct themselves from the West because Western evangelicals who come to Africa kind of teach a message that the West have already lost the battle with like the, the sanctity of humanity and Africans, especially West Africans, have to protect themselves from such kind of demonic uh, polarization, which is like homosexuality being accepted in the West. When I grew up Anglican, when the church in UK whether the first two gay couple, the church, the Anglican Church of Nigeria broke out from the Anglican Church in UK because they want to distinct themselves from that identity. In 2012, when uh, Obama came to Africa, they didn't allow him to come to Nigeria because they felt like he was propagating this Western philosophy of like homosexuality on the continent of Africa. That led to the first bill in Uganda that was called the Kill the Gay Bills. And the Kill the Gay Bills was funded by Western evangelicals who wanted Ugandans to show that they are, they are strong in their faith. And from that legislation led to the Nigerian government passing the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act, which criminalizes same-sex relations by 14 years imprisonment. So Africans are trying to distinct themselves from the West because Western evangelicals spend a lot of money. They call it dark money, trying to promote an ideal African continent that's clean from this Western homosexuality propaganda. There are lots of evangelical churches in the United States and lots of associations of evangelical churches. Are there specific groups that have a focus on Nigeria? In the book, I made mention of some of the specific groups that uh, focused in Nigeria. But, you know, as after writing the book, I've been thinking about it. You know, it's like ca categorizing the entire religion based on one or two evangelical groups that broke out into the continent of Africa. And most people in the U.S. do not know that the money they are giving to church, are foiling such kind of stuff. So I don't want people to uh, lose their faith in God because somebody in their religion did something that was repelling. But most evangelical churches from the south of the United States for these uh, homosexuality acts and the anti-homosexuality bills in the continent of Africa. If you just type on Google, religious, dark money, Spoiling homophobia, you are going to see articles about it. They, they have even done. <laughs> they have done uh, um, peer-reviewed research recently on some of these evangelical churches. Because me, I'm still a person of faith, right? And I don't want to be the person 
that pushes people from their relationship with their religious organization because faith really plays a role in who I am as a person. I'm I'm always in favor of giving our curious listeners a little homework to do to to fill out the interviews. So uh, that was a great answer. Tell me, Adafi, what harm was and is being done to the LGBTQI plus uh, community in the name of religion in Nigeria, and and how much of it is fed by economic and political agendas? So I, I think ninety percent of it is economic political agenda because you know. If you are living in a country whereby there's corruption and there's poverty and an evangelical organization from the West is bringing in millions of dollars, it kind of changes your perception of like what you do as a person. Number one, there's what is called conversion therapy that most evangelical churches do. It's like escocism, whereby they bring the child into the church, they pray for them to pray the gay away. And this is torture, quote-unquote, because the, the kids are asked to fast. Sometimes they are tied with rope and flogged to, like, whip out the demonic spirit from them. And when laws are passed, like the anti-homosexuality bill that was passed in Nigeria, this gave rise to non-state actors, that's people that do not act power to exercise the laws, to take laws into their hands. For example, when I was beaten up by a mob, I couldn't go to the government to report. The mob was saying that if I report, they would take me to the government, and that would lead to 14 years imprisonment. So this kind of anti-homophobia law gave rise to hate and stigma to LGBTQ people leading a lot of people to flee away from their countries to find a place where they could be themselves. Um, there was a study that was done by the Human Rights Watch that found out that 97% of Nigerians say that homosexuality is the cause of the country woes. And if you go wow. online on social media, most people, when they argue against homosexuality, the argument is like Old Testament, and Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of the act of homosexuality. And I think that as a gay person who has gone through persecution, that the idea of gay people being persecuted is not just only wrong, it's even against the Bible, because the Bible said that we should leave it for our God to judge the people that do things wrong. And I think that I don't believe that homosexuality is wrong because I'm a gay person. But I still believe that there should be freedom of religion, but religious organization should not use religion to harm other people because that's what Christ's teaching was all about. It's like, do not harm your neighbors, do not cause any harm to any other person. It should be left between the individual and their God to decide because this is pushing a lot of people away from having a relationship with God. You know that 90% of gay people run away from the church, not because they don't want to practice religion or the, the Islamic religion or major Abrahamic faith religion. They run away because they feel like they wouldn't be accepted for who they are. So I mm -hmm. think that growing up in a country whereby religion was like the bread and butter of our lives. I wake up, I go to church on Sunday, I do Bible study on Wednesday, prayer meeting on Friday, all my friends were in the church. So being prevented from having communication with those people lead to isolation. And some people end up taking up their life because they feel like they're not worthy to be alive. So I think that sometimes some of the the complications that result from anti-homophobic religious views are not documented because the people are not even able to speak up about the inhumane experiences they have had. Losing ties with their family, close friends, and connection is isolating. I'll talk more with Adafe Oporo in just a minute. And later... 
Ross Keyes of Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. There were challenges for you going through the asylum system in America as well. What effect would those challenges have on survivors of violence and and danger who enter the system trying to escape persecution in their homeland? First of all, detention centers are all across the United States. And detention is a form of torture. So like I was fleeing from my country because I don't want to go to jail and came to America and I was placed on handcuff and taken to jail. You know, that kind of further complicates the mental health of individuals who come here to seek protection. I think that uh, it's difficult for you to rebuild your life if you feel like you don't have what as a human being and you're like an alien in this new country. First of all, uh, when a new refugee, like a displaced person, goes to a new country, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, says it takes averagely 17 years to resettle in a new country. So sometimes you have mm-hmm. to learn a new language, you might have to go back to school, uh, social cues are different. So when you stay in a jail for some time and you now come into the society because of that low self-esteem and maltreatment you have faced, you become difficult for you to be like, feel any sense of what as a human being. Asylum is an opportunity for people to rebuild their lives. I think many people feel like detention should be there because it's a way of like documenting people before they come into the country. But most Western countries do not use detention as a system of like welcoming new immigrants. And if we go back historically, use of detention was to deter black and brown migrants from coming into America. So I feel like our treatment of immigrants in America is mostly geared towards black and brown people coming from Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, or Asia. Most people who come from Europe do not face such kind of sentimental backlash because it's like signaling. If you come to the airport, you're black, you like that. That's how they see now you to be go to the side. You get to face more rigorous kind of like documentation. In America, when we talk about immigration, we always think about people coming here. And we never think about why would somebody leave their home to come here to seek protection. And if someone flee their home to come to America, why would we have them to go through a system that makes them feel less of a human being? And that is something I think mm-hmm. is surprising for me because when I was coming to America, I had a different perception of what America is. I, I think that America is like it's like the land of the free, the home of the brave. That was my idea of America. But going through the asylum system, made me have a different idea of what America is. So let's let's talk about the other part of your book, building on what we've heard you say already, the manifesto section. What are you calling for, and from whom should it come? I think systemic change in America is very difficult because we have a 50-50 split Senate. The last time they have a comprehensive immigration reform was in 1980. The U.S. Congress passed the Refugee Act of 1980. That was what gave rise to the opportunity for people to seek asylum. But now I'm calling for the humane treatment of immigrants. Like the idea that guided the book was that home is not just where you feel safe and welcome only, but how you make it feel safe and welcome for others. I'm not saying that we should open the doors for everybody to come to America. 
But when someone is fleeing persecution and get to the door of America, it should be left to the judicial system to decide if the person is worthy to stay in America. So why are we citizens who do not have a legal understanding of the asylum system saying that people should not come here? If I came here and I wasn't given the opportunity to see an immigration judge, maybe I might have died in my own country for just being who I am as a gay person. Many people come in here, that is their quest, is an opportunity to rebuild their lives in a new country. And I think that's what all America is all about, is that it's the dream that if you come here, you can have an opportunity to have a good education, to build your life, and to be able to have a family. And that is what I'm asking for Americans to do, is to look at our lives and think, if our fathers, our great-grandfathers come here and they were given an opportunity to rebuild their life, why are we shutting the door for people who are coming here to seek the same opportunity? So knowing what you know now about America, where should this change originate? Does it need to come initially from Congress, from activists, from uh, from candidates? Tell me. I think it starts with individuals because the power of the people is stronger than the power of the government because the people chooses our government. If more people become aware of these inhumane treatment, like detention, like um, uh, lack of support of social services, people can start thinking what they can do. I think it's little acts of kindness that really help modern legislation. For example, when I came to the US and I was released from the detention center, I was homeless. It was a group of volunteers from an organization called First Friends of New Jersey and New York that rented a shelter at the YMCA for me to stay in. Like when I was preparing for my first interview, there's an organization called Dress for Success. That's where I got a suit. Volunteers donated Metro card for me to attend my first interview. And you know, when they say it takes averagely 17 years to review their life. So if the government passed a legislation that enabled people to seek asylum, then is left up to individuals in Americans to make it welcoming for those people who get here. So I think it's individual change that will lead to a systemic change in America because um, our Congress is dead. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't shy away from that. Congress has not even talked about immigration for a very long time. In 2015, they tried to pass the Dreamers Act. It didn't go through. So other countries are thinking about like labor laws. How can they make it easier for people to come into their countries to seek labor? America is becoming an aging population. Japan, for example, is an aging population. And we need younger people to work to be able to pay into social security so that older people can have a better retirement. And if more and more we are restricting immigration as a country, we're preventing ourselves from the rich diversity that makes us a, 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 a melting pot that people talk about. And we're limiting ourselves from opportunity, from innovation and other areas in that we make the country more successful. Immigrants contribute to the economy of America more than what they take from America. You know, I, I, listening to your story, uh, it, it would be easy for you to become pretty cynical about, uh, about people and about humanity in general. And yet there is a redemptive vision for humanity that pervades everything you, you write and everything you say. Can you can you talk about some of the commonalities you admire among people that you found in Nigeria and in New York and along the way to where you've arrived today? Yeah. You know, as a gay person, when I came out and left my family, the only family I had were other gay people I met in Abuja, Nigeria, like Bobby, who gave me a place to stay for me to be able to have a job. When I came to America, I wanted to find community in the gay community, but I was a refugee, so they regarded me as a refugee. In the refugee community, I'm Black, I'm African. In the African community, I'm gay. 
So every community I found myself in, I was like an order. So the only way I could really create a community is to find people who are passionate about making the world a better place. And those people, we are like the people that I met at the detention center who were part of a group visiting people at the detention center. And I would say, I was pretty shocked that there are more kinder people than people who don't want immigrants to succeed in America. That has been my experience, that Americans in general are kind people because, you know, everywhere you go to, everywhere I go to, I see people who are willing to help and make life better for me. Instead of me to be cynical, I had to embrace that openness that people have, that if people want me to succeed, then why would I not put myself in a position to succeed? That was, that's, that's how I see the world, is that you have to be hopeful rather than cynical. Even the Bible said that even though you have faith as me to have mustard seed, you can move mountains. So people had faith in me that we are as big as mountains. So I just needed to have a little faith as a mustard seed. And that was what I did. And I met people with good karma. Well, you you are uh, a deeply faithful person as well, and yet you've been injured in lots of ways by the the traditions that you've attempted to be a part of. I think that's probably the experience for lots of people in the LGBT community. What would you tell them about maintaining their faith in the face of sometimes antagonistic religious institutions? I think that our faith has nothing to do with people. That's, it's all about our relationship with a divine being. And if you allow people to shape or refrain you from having that relationship, then those people have won. I think it's not allowing them to win over us because the reason why we are able to win gay rights it's not just because of gay people alone. There were people who were not gays, there were allies. There's only 4% of gay people in America. The remaining 96% are non-gay. So if those people are not allies, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. So I would say, just act like the way Jesus acted. That is to be a peacemaker, a lover of humanity, and just continue to have faith that everything will be okay. Because when I was younger, I never saw people that were gay in the church, in my community. I never saw people. And if I had given up right then, right now, I wouldn't be an example to other younger people who see me and feel like they can have a life too as a gay person. So if you hold on to your faith and you continue to live life joyously and faithfully, one day, your life will be an example to other people. And even people that hate you would say, I wish to be like that person because they are a true example of what it is to be a Christian. So imagine yourself being one of those young people, you yourself, Adafi. What, what would you say to the young man you were uh, that would have benefited you in making the progress to the wise and mature man you've become? I don't want to cry. <laughs> uh, I would say... Um, it's always a successful day for me when I can make someone cry, so go ahead. <laughs> I would just say, like, keep on having faith. My earphone fell. <laughs> I'll just say keep on having faith that everything will be fine. Because... I grew up in a family where we lived on a, less than a dollar a day. And now I'm living in New York City. I just graduated from my master's in NYU. I got married two weeks ago. And I couldn't have imagined any of this growing up. So I don't know what I would have told him that would have made a difference. Just keep on having faith and looking up to people 
that inspire you and have faith that one day it should be okay. Because I don't know what I would have said. I don't know. <laughs> well, you did a great Great job in answering a difficult question, and uh, <laughs> and I appreciate everything that you've done for us in uh, in this conversation today, Adafe. Adafe Oporo is a successful management consultant in New York City, a global gay rights activist, and founder of Refuge America. He shares his journey from Nigerian refugee to American success story and testifies to the challenges and obstacles within the asylum system in the book, Asylum, a memoir and manifesto. Adafi, it is a powerful work. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you very much. Interfaith Alliance affiliates are scattered across this nation from sea to shining sea. But unprecedented challenges to true religious freedom for all are inspiring new groups and individuals to join those ranks, as is the case with my next guest, Ross Keyes, who is the driving force behind organizing Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota. And I'm happy to have him with us to talk about the process, the motivation, and the goals of this enormous effort. Ross, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you very much, Jack. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on here. So tell me, what's been happening in North Dakota that made you think all the work involved in launching a new organization was justified? Well, it's not the only organization I've launched recently. So it, it, it actually plays uh, a very complementary role to, to something else I've been working on. Anyway, in, in the state, uh, I've been involved with government and politics uh, for over 30 years, and, and I simply noticed a, a, a change in the, in the people in North Dakota. Uh, it's been pretty obvious. Um, uh, some really good people uh, being misled by by some others who uh, maybe didn't have their best interests at heart. And um, after I was was out of uh, government and political work, I got together with some other individuals who were interested in forming a state table. Part of that table was the creation of something called the North Dakota Voices Network, 501c3. And we pulled together a lot of different forward-thinking organizations in North Dakota to work with each other, try and get a message of compassion and acceptance uh, back out there again. But in the back of my mind, I, I thought, who do people listen to? Who, and who has a, the, the respect and a broad range that can really help with this messaging in North Dakota? And it came back time and again to faith leaders. And I, I decided uh, with the blessing of the folks of, of North Dakota Voices Network, I decided, well, I'm going to reach out and, and uh, talk to as many forward-thinking faith leaders in North Dakota as, as I can, and, and that's led me to this. You yourself don't identify quite so much as a person of faith, or at least with a formal religion. What made you decide to come at this from an interfaith angle and lift up the voices of faith? But I knew that we, we needed to change hearts and minds across North Dakota. And in the past, in my work in government, I often would notice the, the efforts of Interfaith Alliance and other organizations, uh, faith organizations that we get together and maybe write letters to members of Congress and share that with national media on issues such as uh, tax cut proposals at the national level or, or budget proposals, things that really impacted the poor. And these faith communities would make these very uh, impressive statements uh, on whether or not those proposals reflected the teachings and the compassion and acceptance that, that we want to share in North Dakota and across the country. So in the, in the back of my head, I've, I've been working with this organization. You never knew about it, but I've, I've been taking the, the, all of the things that you've been producing and using it in the past with people across the state of North Dakota. And it, it reached a point as I'm, I'm out of that position now, creating this other uh, North Dakota Voices Network. And if I want to change hearts and minds in the state, how do you best do it? It just all seemed to come together. Well, let's let's work with faith leaders. And and even though I I may not go to a church regularly, I, I'm 
constantly seeking spiritual guidance and answers to questions that I've I've had for years, and so it, it it all seems to fit. So let's let's brag about the people who are involved with Interfaith Alliance a little bit. Tell us the, who are the kinds of people you've been meeting with, and what's their reaction been? I, I've got to say that my trips and my meetings with the faith leaders in North Dakota are uh, nothing short of incredible. Every single one of them. The the talent, the brilliance, uh, compassion of these people blows me away every single time I meet with them. We are rich in um, the talent of faith leaders in North Dakota. We often get together. I've it, and It's been kind of slow going because of COVID and North Dakota winters. What I try and do because of my background, I, I really want to visit one-on-one -on -one with these folks so they can go, okay, yeah, I, I can trust you. I believe in what you're doing. So we'll get together over coffee or for me, um, hot chocolate. And I'll explain, here's my background. Here's what I'm about. Here's what I'd like to do. Are you interested? And I'm... I'm batting a thousand, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to reach as many forward-thinking faith leaders across the state as possible. You know, uh, doesn't matter the the religious background, and uh, everyone is is very very excited to band together and make this work. You've been able to promote values that are common to lots of different faith traditions, and and to people who don't profess a faith tradition. What are some of those values you think have been marginalized in public rhetoric uh, in North Dakota? And how would you like to change that? Well, some of the values, and we've, we've seen some of this over the past legislative sessions, um, values of acceptance, uh, social and economic justice are, are kind of driving forces in, in what we do with North Dakota Voices Network. And I, I'm believe in what we're going to be doing with the Interfaith Alliance. And we just want to uh, um, help communities that uh, may be under attack in some way, shape, or form across the state and reinstall, uh, you know, hey, this is what North Dakotans are really about. They're the ones that'll, you know, give you the shirt off their back. Uh, so get back to the compassion and acceptance that, that I've seen all of my life. And, and some folks just um, can get misled and drawn away from those goals, those teachings, and, and that's what we want to get back to. Can you say something about your own background that has prepared you for this kind of work? You mentioned that you've worked with other organizations. You had some time in government. What brought you to this? When I was in government, I was able to work with some really terrific people, and, and I'll name names here, uh, Congressman Earl Pomeroy, Senator Kent Conrad, most recently, uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, and, and, and Senator Byron Dorgan, but just tremendous leaders who fought. Uh, Earl's, Earl's motto for his re-election campaigns was helping people. It's as simple as that, helping people. Earl is Earl's a great guy. He he spent not enough time in the in the house, but he was a terrific guy. He is a terrific guy. Yeah, I so dear dear friends, unbelievable talents, wonderful representation for the state of North Dakota. And their work um every day is is what I'm talking about here, uh helping people. How can you help people? How can you uh work towards social and economic justice? for folks that uh, uh, could use a, a hand up. And, and so it's been, it's been a long process. And along the way, uh, there'd be some interaction with, with faith leaders and faith communities across the state. And it all just kind of led to this point in my life. We were talking a little bit before this interview started um, about certain risks that you have to face as a uh, a left-leaning activist in a state that is pretty deep red much of the time. Um, I know you've thought about uh, what it means to deviate from the conservative narrative and what kinds of challenges it brings. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, you, you never know where um, you might get tripped up uh, or you may offend someone who, who doesn't believe in what you're doing, but 
the, the fact of the matter is, uh, on issue after issue, um, I think North Dakotans agree with what we're trying to do. Um, we'll be working on in, in the Voices Network uh, child care effort going into, into the session to try and improve child care access and reliability in the prof profession itself going into this session in 2023. Uh, fair housing, decent wages, uh, paid medical leave. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of issues that North Dakotans, when they look at it, study it, actually there shouldn't be any concern because they're on the same they're on the same page as where i'm coming from and where these faith leaders are coming from but there are some who will be uh who will react in a negative way and uh, we'll just have to work through it you know one step at a time and i think that uh having the faith community helping express these these positions these these concerns uh will be very helpful in in that process you know, some, so many of us who live on the two coasts, which is also where so much of the public media is located, um, think they know what goes on in the South and pay no attention to what goes on in the North. And it is, it's refreshing to hear that there is, in a state like North Dakota, which is not as popularly dense as, uh, as places like Texas or, or Florida, that there are these vibrant and compassionate conversations taking place all over the state it's it's been a, it's been real fun meeting with these people and, and exploring these issues wonderful what would you say to someone who is sick of having their values and particularly their religious values made invisible by rhetoric that raises up only one version of faith in action as legitimate what what first steps would you would you recommend to someone who's thinking, hey, maybe I should try and do something about this too? We need those connections. We need these people to reach out to uh, um, maybe the faith leaders in their area. I, people who are interested in this, I, I'd love for them to reach out to me. The, the more the merrier. The stronger we can make this, the, the more corners of the state, the better. After the past number of years, one thing that I find is that it, it so many people are giving up. They don't know who to turn to. They 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 can't see a way through this. And and I just we can't give up. We've got to continue to give people hope and uh, bring the conversation back to uh, uh, values of compassion and and acceptance. So uh, reach out, reach out to to me, reach out to the local faith leaders, reach out to friends who may be involved in in efforts that are of the same interest as as the person going through. You know, what do I do? It's it's always so heartening to hear someone with passion be able to describe the power of one and the power of one plus one and then plus one and plus one. So your, your call to action is great. Now let's get down to specifics. Please say a few words about how people can support what you're doing and why they should. Uh, right now, we do not yet have uh, social media up and running, uh, but that is a, a very important uh, step in the process for us. It's very, we're in the very early stages of pulling this all together, but uh, if folks would like to get in touch with me to find out more about what we're doing, I encourage them to contact Interfaith Alliance in Washington, uh, who could then get them in touch with me in North Dakota. That's great. Interfaithalliance.org, or you can send an email to info at interfaithalliance.org, and uh, someone will be back in touch with you and, and connect you with Ross in North Dakota. Ross Keyes is working to launch Interfaith Alliance of North Dakota, protecting true religious freedom for all. Ross, please let me wish you good luck with this enormous undertaking and good mileage on your car, and thanks very much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and a, a real honor to meet you, Jack, and, and I really appreciate the support of uh, National Interfaith Alliance, as well as some of the state interfaith alliances that I've spoken with. So thank you so much. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.